Well, Meredith Monday and Two Kingdom Tuesday all blended into one. Not sure where this, is, this will end up, but uh, we've got Chris on and we're going to kick it off, so stay tuned. Chris, how's it going? It's going well. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, just uh, lamenting our, our the fact that our last discussion got completely sideswiped by the by the lack of um, Wi-Fi on my set. Well, it wasn't actually just a Wi-Fi breakdown. It was more like a Facebook meltdown. I don't know what happened there. The computer technology just, completely sabotaged oh, us at, at every turn. It was crazy. Um, so uh, you know, we we started off thinking about two kingdom Lutheran thinking, and in many ways, it is connected to the Meredith Klein thing, uh, because in many ways, um, well, let's put it this way. I mean, it's some, and we, this is maybe begging the question, and and we have to look at this uh, f- further, but. Um, Klein is often connected to Lutheran two kingdoms, at least at a superficial level. Um, I know, like, for example, John Frame, who rails against Reformed two kingdom theology, will see that, uh, will we'll sort of speak of, of uh, that theology as being a, something based in Klein's exegesis and kind of uh, extended through some Lutheran thinking. And so in that sense, it's uh, often connected. And then... Um, I think also, just if for, if for no other thing, I mean, you've got a legacy being set up in the doctrine of uh, two kingdoms in things like Augustine and Luther, even if it's not exactly what we end up with in Klein's thinking or reformed uh, two kingdom thinking uh, necessarily, or even Kelvin, um, there is there is something of a connection there that that uh, is is worth just making and uh, keeping in mind uh, without necessarily needing to depend to you know, much on that connection. But it is, for that reason, just a subject of interest to me to look at uh, the the Lutheran spin on this, because um, obviously as Reformed theology has developed, Lutheran theology has kind of moved in a in their trajectory, and they have, um, I know that they, for example, um, will hear the, will constantly feel irritated by the fact that um, perhaps the wider Reformed community or some people will identify um, uh, reform to kingdom theology as Lutheranism or Lutheran, Lutheran mm-hmm. doctrine. And I know they don't like that. Um, well, some, well, most, I think. I haven't ever seen a Lutheran that does like that. Um, and they feel like it's being misrepresented. And I think they probably have a point. Although, I, I, you know, therein lies the, the area of interest for me. It's not so much that I can, you know, uh, flip channels and start going down a Lutheran track. It's more just, um, it's just to find out exactly, you know, I don't want to make that mistake. And, um, I uh, want to be as appreciative as possible of their, their own sort of uh, differences and even uh, not not read Luther incorrectly. So, yeah, I mean, uh, what thoughts have you had on, on that uh, kind of thing? Have you ever been challenged on on the whole Lutheran-Klein connection? A little bit. I mean, not not too much. Um, you know, it is a, a favorite uh, way to abuse people from Westminster Seminary, California, to call them Lutheranizing. Um, but I I think that in this case, there is probably more that we have in common than we have, um, not in common, Mm -hmm. but there are, there are some legitimate, um, differences. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I also think that, uh, 
Klein really framed all of this in terms of the distinction between the covenant of common grace and the covenant of grace. And when Lutherans hear us doing covenant theology, it's just a completely foreign language to them, and they, yeah. they don't understand. Um, I think most of the time, they don't even have the energy to invest in trying to to grapple with what we're saying. <clears throat> and I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like we're running around trying to invest a lot of time and understanding what they're saying either. Right, right. Um, but um, occasionally, you have a Lutheran who grew up or came to Lutheranism from Reformed theology, and they're able to maybe do some translation just because you know, mm. that's where they've come from. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah, good point. And so, enter Jordan Cooper. Yes. Uh, who we've yeah. recommended on the podcast a few times now, and that was your recommendation to me initially. Um, and uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it. I know uh, my brother listens to it now as well. And, you know, just, yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't always deal with like Lutheran distinctives. So it's not it's not only for Lutherans, of course. Um, and he's just hitting a few different angles there. But it's just, uh, yeah, just on, he's also very aware of, as you say, the, the covenant theology of a reformed situation and um, is able to, kind of address that and deal with that. I like what you said last time you know, in the show that didn't end up recording. Um, the, you know, you, when you hear him talk about you or, or your position, you recognize yourself there. It's not like he's just uh, uh, throwing some caricature out. Um, rather, he, he's he's being accurate. And I think that's, that's awesome. Whenever that happens, that's a, a very helpful thing on its own right. Um, too often everyone just sort of creates their own picture and moves on. Um, so yeah, like you said, we want to be careful in, in returning the favor and um, we want to make sure that that um, there is a, a care given to, to what what it is that they would see as a two-kingdom doctrine. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, look, I have, uh, I've listened to a few of his sessions. I've uh, read a few articles. I've uh, admittedly not looked too far down the Lutheran track. Um, I, I do find myself getting a little bit confused. I think I think what you said earlier there, in terms of the one being based on a, a covenant understanding, you know, and the other one mm-hmm. sort of coming out of coming at it more from a, um, what, what how would you say a spherical kind of you know, um, uh, the arena of life kind of thing, the states in which we dwell. It seems like a quite a different approach in that regard, and um, and so maybe that's one of the the keys in just being able to sort of untangle some of the different language, but. Um, yeah, I mean, just as you've thought about it, um, what would you say the difference is um, if we had to hammer down on the way it ultimately works itself out? Well, I think um, that one of the real differences is that the Lutheran understanding of the two kingdoms really does seem to divide it up in terms of law and gospel, so that uh, the, God's left-hand kingdom is completely law, and God's right-hand kingdom is completely gospel. And so, even though we would probably see everything that the church um, is mandated by God to do as being um, part of the kingdom of God, um, we don't really use the right-hand, left-hand distinction. They would see, like, for example, the administrative aspects of being church, um, having leaders who get together and make decisions about the direction that things are going to go, um, church constitution, things like that, those would belong to the left-hand kingdom and fall under the category of law rather than under the category of gospel for them. Yes, okay. That would be one difference. 
But another is that I think that because they're um, drinking maybe more immediately from Augustine's well right. on this one. Okay. Um, right. And given that, I mean, everyone in the Reformation lived in a um, a Constantinian par- paradigm. There was really yes. no conceptual way to transcend yes. that. Mm-hmm. They're much more comfortable with the practical outworkings of Constantinianism so that the church should be involved in um, meeting the material needs of everyone in their geographic area, not just the members of the church on on that side. And then on the other side, that the civil magistrate does really have a responsibility to um, punish. I mean, in that, in that video that I just refreshed my memory on, um, by Jordan Cooper, he was mm. saying that the civil magistrate should punish blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was, uh, he could tell as he said it, he was feeling a little bit like, wow, that's quite a big point. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, interesting. So, you know, um, I suppose that's kind of what I was thinking. And I know one of his concerns um, was that, you know, if if you go the, the whole Reform to Kingdom route, you know, you, you potentially are going to have a church that sort of just separates itself from the world and and um, does its own thing and doesn't care about anyone else. And, you know, if that church had to kind of be removed one day, um, you know, no one would really care because they haven't been making the impact that they should. Um, as I don't know. What do you think about that before I say anything? There's something to that. Um, I mean, if... I, I guess we could take it um, to a point where, uh, like like he says, nobody even knows that the that the church is there. Mm. Um, I haven't really thought through uh, appropriate ways to to remedy that. But, yeah, totally. Um, I, I feel the weight of that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a good point. I mean, you know, I've often said, and in fact, when he said that's why it struck such a chord. I was thinking, I suppose, more in terms of the Neo-Kyperian versus, you know, two-kingdom thing, uh, reform two-kingdom thing. But um, I, sp- I suppose one of, the, one of the things that have, has often come out of that debate, you know, that, that I'm left with is thinking, okay, I'm definitely landing on the reform two-kingdom side, no doubt, on, on all the, the theoretical outworkings of this. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, the danger is obvious. And just as you would want to challenge the the other side to stick to the program, stay with the gospel, you know, just uh, the, make that distinction between individuals and the organization of the church and make sure you're just getting there right. I think it's also true that, you know, that doesn't mean we, we're off the hook in terms of allowing, it's almost like we need to place a, 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 a um, just realizing that potential weakness means you probably do need to be placing a lot of preaching focus and discipling focus, so to speak, on the on the issues of being salt and light in the world so that, you know, it, while it's true that you don't necessarily have to have a church um, soup kitchen that's being set up or whatever, you know, you do want to, as a Christian, be involved with whatever is going on down the road. And, um, you know, a, as, a, as an individual Christian or whatever it is that you have access to, you, don't, you, don't, you do want to be thinking outwardly and you do want to be, you know, actively working for the peace of the city, I suppose you could say, uh, using Jeremiah's language there. Um, right. Anyway, so moving on from that point, um, what, what the, the other thing is just, um, 
thinking also that maybe, maybe I don't know what Jordan Cooper would say to this, but I, I thought that Michael Horton does do a good job in sort of answering that by speaking about the, uh, you know, the church as an organism and the church as an organization. I don't know if you've ever heard him talk like that. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because what that does is it just says, you know, okay, we're not in any way saying detach yourself from the world. If anything, the whole concept there is be a worldly Christian in the best possible sense. You know, go and get out there and get your hands dirty. And if anything, you have greater liberty to to get stuck in because you don't. it doesn't always have to be a Christian thing that you're doing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And you can actively work for, for good in any sphere, and you know, and you should be, and that's your Christian duty. But it's just that we're separating, you know, the um, we're keeping the gospel mission for the church very, very clear, uh, as an organization at least, as, as you know, that, that Lord's Day gathering thing. Um, right. So I think that does answer that at some level. Um, it, but just obviously you want to not be, weak, uh, not be uh, ignorant of your own potential blind spots. Um, but then the other thing I was thinking, um, and I know we kind of briefly chatted about this uh, a while back, is that uh, you mentioned that, um, interestingly, you don't see a lot of Lutheranism hitting theonomy, or did you say like ever? I don't think you've, you know, you mentioned something the other day, you know, which I thought, wow, that's actually quite a crazy thought. Yeah. It, and and then as I was re-listening to Jordan today, um, I realized that you do get uh, theocracy coming through when you say that the civil magistrate should do something like punish blasphemy. Right, totally. So yeah. um, you could get it coming in that way, and yet... Whenever Lutherans encountered someone who suggested that the civil magistrate should adopt the Mosaic law or um, something like that, uh, mm. it was just a resounding no. I mean, there wasn't even like a debate within Lutheranism. It was just, nope, <laughs> that's not your job. Yeah. Yeah, that's so crazy. Yeah, so it becomes very... Uh, yeah, I wish I had a better handle on it, but, you know, reading from, uh, here's a quote from Martin Luther um, that basically, you know, uh, might get at the heart of this whole thing. And that he, this is from his um, commentary on the Psalms, um, or his sermon on the Psalms, I suppose, Psalm 2, uh, where he says, The spiritual government or authority should direct the people vertically toward God, um, that they may do right and be saved. And by spiritual government authority, I think he has in mind the, the you know, ecclesiastical kind of uh, church authority thing. Um, just so the secular government should direct the people horizontally toward one another, uh, seeing to it that body, property, honor, wife, child, house, home, and all manner of goods remain in peace and security and are blessed on earth. And then he says, God wants the governments of the world to be a symbol of true salvation uh, and of his kingdom of heaven, uh, like a pantomime or a mask, <laughs> which is the whole thing that kind of throws me at the end there. In that I'm kind of, I think I've almost got my head around it. And that basically he's saying, yeah, you got the left hand, right hand thing. Um, you got this vertical orientation of the believer toward God. Uh, what is that? The that's the right hand kingdom, right? Yeah, and I mean, what you just read. I am 100% comfortable with. How do you feel about that? Well, it's just that when he says God wants the governments of this world to be a symbol of true salvation, what does he mean there? Oh. You know, mm. that last little bit. That's why I say like everything everything up until that point, I'm like, yeah, totally. You know, that, that sort of overlaps big time with, with what we would normally 
normally think of. I mean, I suppose just even on the lead up to that, when he when he talks about the 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 uh, which one? So the right hand gov the right hand uh, government is the which one? That's the the church authority thing, and the left hand yeah, that's the preaching of the gospel, basically. right? Yeah, preaching the gospel exactly. Um, so there's the vertical, and then the left hand kingdom is kind of this horizontal uh, orientation. And so he's saying the vertical, you know, that has to do with your standing with God, preaching of the gospel, etc. Um, and and then the the, the left hand is the vertical, at least the horizontal orientation. And um, I don't know, it just feels like that's a, an artificial separation there. And um, and we, at, at the end, uh, God wants the governments of the world to be a symbol of true sal- salvation and his kingdom of heaven. That sounds like something a theonomist would say. Um, you know, <laughs> yes, and yet, I mean, based on what I know of Luther, I, I would re- honestly be shocked if he means... Uh, yeah you know, our ultimate eternal destiny by that word salvation. I wonder if he isn't talking about, if that's not a parallel way of talking about keeping peace and order among the, the people in the kingdom. Yeah, good. No, totally. Now, coming back to the blasphemy, um, you know, the, the state punishing blasphemy thing, because I think I would struggle to see Luther arguing for a um, an ideal situation where the church is actually protecting the religious freedom of another faith. Um, do you think that he, that he would want that? Uh, no, uh, just because he's now roundly and soundly condemned, uh, you know, for what he said about Jews. And um, right. I know that he was also um, really very concerned about the encroaching um, Islam, which he yes. spoke of in terms of the Turks. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. Those were synonymous in his mind. Yeah. But, um yeah, he wouldn't have wanted to give um, Muslims the freedom to set up a mosque in his city. That would not have gone over with him. Right. So, you know, for that, again, it sounds to me like anyone who's going to latch on to any of that kind of thinking is probably going to take that with them, right? Or do you think that, that you know, it, that's part of the Constantinian sort of framework he's operating in that would fall away and his thought distilled to its essence would lead to a more... Um, you know, something different, making allowance for other religions and that sort of thing. Yeah, so here's how I understand the way religious liberty worked in in their minds in the uh, 16th century, Hmm. Um, at least in Luther's context. Your local prince um, could determine the religion of his, um, you know, the area that he was responsible for. Right. And so the neighboring prince might be a Roman Catholic, you know, and as long as they stayed on their side and you stayed on your side and didn't try to use the sword to force, you know, the other group to yeah, um, to change their religion, everyone got along. And I suppose in theory um, that could work with Islam, except that they were even seeing at that time that it that wasn't really going to be possible because they were going to come with swords to try to. Yes. Impose Islam. And right. So and they were thinking more in terms of just um, just war at that point And and um, right. yeah. And just and just self-defense, I suppose. <clears throat> yeah. So it was very difficult to, to, to find out what they would have actually done in a situation like ours. Yeah. I suppose that's where the challenge lies. And um, but I mean, I think any sort of any desire to sort of punish blasphemy I don't know. You'd have to limit it. Like, like even would that only be punishing blasphemy in the church? Or what about those who don't even profess, you know, faith or exactly? Yeah, you See, just, yeah. 
it wasn't a category for them at that time to yeah. conceive of anyone in the kingdom not believing. Right. That so was... I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they had a category for that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you think of... When, when he says that, or when a Lutheran says that, um, it may not immediately strike us how problematic that could be, because what if Lutherans have a different understanding? I mean, what if they thought that um, the Reformed understanding of the two natures of Christ was blasphemy. Yes. yes. Yikes. Yeah. You know, or, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. even in our, I mean, I, I, I hate to, to go there, but even in our own context, I mean, uh, like uh, Calvin versus Anabaptists, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, basically you can use blasphemy to say that <laughs> anyone who professes um, anything different than you. Mm, um, mm. Yeah, and it, it gets ugly real quick. And so, I mean, the, the question then is like, to what degree was that essential to Lutheran thinking or the ideal of Lutheran thinking? And, you know, to what degree was that just part of the day, I suppose? Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting to see Jordan kind of even go there, you know, in mm -hmm. our day. And it, it did make me a little bit nervous. I think that makes me a lot more nervous than, you know, potentially not being able to open a soup kitchen or something, you know. Um, it, just, <laughs> right. it just feels like that's the far more dangerous of the two problems. But hey, let's, um, I've just seen the time on this podcast. Let's wrap this up. Um, let's uh, come back at this tomorrow. And uh, we'll stay tuned for Two King Tuesday uh, tomorrow, and we'll look at this. I think I want to just talk a little bit about Kelvin's view, and, and Chris will stay with us for that. Uh, thanks a million, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.